Our scripture reading this morning, the passage Jeremy will be preaching on, is Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. Those of you who have been paying attention, I guess the past year may have noticed that Jeremy is gradually preaching through the book of Malachi uh, with us, and so this is the next passage in that series of sermons, and it reads as follows. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will bring a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word. Jeremy. Thank you, Josh. Let's pray. Father God, we pray from Psalm 119, asking that you would teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, that we would keep it to the end, that you would give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart, that you would lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. Incline our hearts, God, to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. And turn away the reproach that we dread, for your rules are good. And behold, God, would we long for your precepts, and in your righteousness give us life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, witnessed the first detonation of a nuclear weapon on July 16, 1945, he said, and I quote, we knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent. He said, I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, 
Vishnu, one of the principal gods of Hinduism, is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, he takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that, he says, one way or another. A couple of weeks later, the bomb was dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, bringing death and judgment to hundreds of thousands of people. Now, I'm not here to debate the morality or even the reasons for such a decision, so much as to observe that the dropping of the bomb could not discriminate who it fell upon. It could not discriminate upon relative guilt and relative innocence. In other words, it destroyed indiscriminately. In our text this morning, we see judgment, but not indiscriminate judgment. Instead, we see specific, laser-focused judgment by fire, meant for life-giving refinement rather than for life-denying destruction. While Vishnu destroys worlds, at least in a fictional sense, for what is Vishnu except for an idol embodied by a demon subject to God, the God of the Bible refines by fire. Now, refinement by fire does not destroy an element so much as it gets rid of the impurities in the element, boiling it down to its essential purity. To use an analogy, it would be the equivalent of pruning a plant rather than tearing it up by its root. Well, in like fashion, God does not seek to destroy his people. He seeks to purify them, to cleanse them in order to make them fit for service. Now, I will confess that this can be a rather painful, albeit necessary, process. But it's never ultimately destructive. And this purification is not something that we can accomplish for ourselves. And neither is it something that our religious leaders can accomplish for us. This is something that God must do. Which brings us to the main idea of our text this morning. And that is, because the priests had failed as God's messengers, God will send his own messenger to both purify and vindicate his people. Because the priests had failed as God's messengers, God will send his own messengers, his own messenger, excuse me, to both purify and vindicate his people. Back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, God reminded his people that he had sovereignly elected them to be his. They had returned from Persian exile about a hundred years prior. They were still under Persian rule, with their land reduced to a mere fraction of its former glory. As a result, they had forgotten God's love because their sinfulness had caused them to experience God's judgment. So God called them in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 1 to give him their best, for he is worthy. Instead, they brought God their worst, offering sacrifices that were blind, lame, and sick. And so God cursed the priests in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, for allowing this, chastising them for their failure to give honor to God by guarding knowledge and seeking his instruction. 
And as the priests had gone, so had gone the people. One unfaithfulness led to another, which led to a practical outworking of unfaithfulness to God in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, manifested in unfaithfulness in marriage. This is what we looked at back in February, the last time I had preached. And let me just say that unfaithfulness in marriage often begins with a strained relationship with God. Now, the inevitability of this happening was no wonder, for God's messengers had failed to honor God. And so where does that leave them? And where does that leave us? If God's leaders cannot be faithful, and if God's people cannot be faithful, then who can? Which brings us to our text today. We see in chapter 2, verse 17, on into the first part of verse 2 in chapter 3, that God sends his messenger to prepare the way. But before he does, God addresses the complaints of the people regarding injustice in chapter 2, verse 17. You see, they had, in a figurative sense, wearied God with their words, meaning that God had come to the point where he must intervene in order to put a stop to their behavior. Now, if you're a parent with children, you know something of what it means to be wearied by them. Likewise, though, if you're a child with parents, especially if you're a teenager, perhaps you too know something of what it means to be wearied by your parents. Well, so much the more, God has been wearied with children who just don't seem to get it. And yet they cannot understand how they've wearied him. So God answers them, you've wearied me by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Because God had not immediately judged sin, the people had concluded that God approved of sin, even questioning, where's the God of justice? As if sinners can sin with impunity. Now, I want you to notice three characteristics of dissatisfaction in the text here, both their dissatisfaction and ours. First of all, we see a complaining spirit here. What they say is both whiny and wearisome, complaining to God, dissatisfied with God's handling of the situation. Secondly, we see a crazy talkativeness. They're running their mouths. They're giving little thought to what they're saying, even making false and foolish accusations against God, accusing him of approving of evil. And thirdly, we see a careless questioning, asking where God's justice lies, when they, in fact, had repeatedly perverted God's justice. Not to mention the fact that they were impatient for God's justice, thinking that they knew better than God as to where and when he should bring retribution. So let me ask you this. Does that sound familiar? How often have you heard or even expressed this tired refrain, blaming God for injustice the world over while taking little to no personal responsibility? We would like to blame everything and anything other than ourselves for the trouble we see. What do we blame? First of all, we blame the environment. If we could just change the environment around us, well, then all would be well. 
right? The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, describes this sort of dependency on one's environment being right when he compares it to having to leave one's shirt by the fire to keep it warm, for the external heat to warm that shirt and to in turn warm you, rather than to simply put on that shirt and go about your business relying what's on what's inside of you, internal contentment, right? Internal satisfaction that God gives rather than on what's around you. Letting your body warm the shirt. Let me just say that if we waited for our environment to be right, we'd be waiting a long time. And we would, in fact, have to live in an artificial environment where little would get done with little interaction with one another. But this dependency upon the right environment denies our own sinfulness and our own culpability in the matter. Let me just say that this is probably my besetting blame. If I could just fix the environment around me, then, then, then I'll be okay, right? Well, then where else can we turn? Let's blame the other person, perhaps. If we could just change the other person, then all would be well. But again, that denies our own sinfulness, our own culpability. I think we need the sage advice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer here from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, we should look for evil where it is certain to be found, and that is in our own hearts. But if we're on the lookout for evil in others, our real motive is obviously to justify ourselves, for we are seeking to escape punishment for our own sins by passing judgment on others. Need I say more? Well, then, where else can we look? Well, it must be God. We ask what they asked. Where is the God of justice? It must be God. He's to blame. Again, denying our part in the problem. I need not detain you. The problem is not the environment. It's not the other person, though sinful they may be. It's certainly not God. It's us, first and foremost. We, even the church, can weary God with our words all the while our heart remaining far from him. Brothers and sisters, we simply do not have the equipment in and of ourselves to truly assess the problem, especially if we remain unwilling to admit that we're part of the problem. Where is the God of justice? We'll keep reading. We see in chapter 3, verse 1 and through the first part of verse 2, that God will bring justice in his own way and in his own time. It says he will send his messenger to prepare the way before him. Now, this verse finds fulfillment in two people. John the Baptist, who clears away obstacles of unbelief, preparing the way for Jesus Christ, the second messenger identified here as the messenger of the covenant. One commentator says that whenever a messenger of God appears in the Old Testament, the covenant between the Lord and Israel is always the issue. And he cites a myriad of Old Testament texts to prove it. In this case, God comes to seal the covenant that he made with Abraham, or I'm sorry, with Adam first, promising to crush the head of Satan through his offspring. 
the covenant made with Abraham, promising vindication for God's people and blessings to all the nations of the earth through his offspring. The covenant made with David, that he would establish his throne forever through his offspring. And the new covenant that God made with his people, wherein he would put his law within their hearts, forgiving iniquity and transgression and remembering sin no more through his offspring. All of these find fulfillment in Jesus Christ, God's son. It says in verse 1 that God's people sought this deliverance. But as much as they sought it, they were not ready for it. Which brings us to verse 2 where we see that it says, but who can endure the day of his coming? They're not ready for it. Who can stand when he appears? A day will come when the long-suffering of God will be exhausted. Despite his character, despite who he is, and he reveals that to us in Exodus 34, where we see his long-suffering, where we see his love, where we see his justice. And what was Moses' reaction when he heard God describe his own character, describe his own nature? What did he do? He quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And let me just say that that is the only proper response at the day of his coming. And so I ask you this morning, is that your response? Or do you live your life as if you, on your own, can endure the day of his coming? Do you think that you can stand quite on your own when he appears? Are you strong enough to endure, to stand against the wrath of God against sin? Do you not comprehend your desperate condition? You perhaps know there's a problem, like I have, but have you sought solutions and things that just never truly deliver? So let me ask you, who can endure? Who can stand? As if to say here, no one can endure his coming. No one can stand at his appearance on their own. Sin must be dealt with first. But who's equal to such a task? Is it you? Is it me? We've already determined that we're part of the problem. And so we must look elsewhere. So God sends his messenger to prepare the way, which leads to uh, chapter 3, verse 2, on into verse 5, where we see that also God purifies and vindicates his people. First of all, we see in verses 2 through 4 that God purifies his people. He says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. Just as gold and silver are impure in their natural state, so are we. And as fire burns up all the dross and impurities in those precious metals, so too will God refine and purify by fire, by adversity. Because left to ourselves, we have no more ability to refine and purify ourselves than gold or silver can on their own. And yet the base elements must be removed. But let me just say this. It's not as if there's a level of purity in each of us that if we just apply the appropriate amount of heat, well, then the impurity will be burned up and we'll be left pure in and of ourselves. No, no, no. The Bible tells us that in and of ourselves, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
that none are righteous. And so if God were to apply this refining heat strictly to us, our natures would have to be boiled down to nothing, completely evaporated, completely obliterated. And so what does he do? He sends a substitute, a worthy substitute who is pure in order that we might be refined and purified vicariously through the suffering of another. And we'll get to who that is in a moment. But let me just say this, that only after that substitute suffers and we realize that we bring nothing pure, nothing refined in and of ourselves to the table, confessing our utter bankruptcy and hopelessness, does God then declare us righteous. And once he makes that declaration, affirming our imputed or our credited righteousness, only then does he continue the lifelong process of purification and refinement in us. Yes, God ultimately substitutes another to suffer in your place, but guess what? He leaves you in a world fraught with suffering. And you remain there for a reason. Because through trial and adversity, we can, in a sense, in a sense, become like our substitute. Through trial and adversity, our faith can be tested. Through trial and adversity, we continue to see our utter need for God. What does that do but produce joy and rejoicing? 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 says that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that, he says, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, the same idea that we see here in our text, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, understanding our place as creatures and not masters of our own fate produces a right view of ourselves and a right view of God, which results in Worship, giving credit where credit is due. And I'll just have to say that often comes in struggle, in enduring hard things until God refines and purifies us. Now, of course, in one sense, that purification came through Jesus' death, wherein he justified his people before God. But finally, this refinement comes at the end of our lives, at the end of our age, or at the end of, our, of the age, at his second coming, where we will be sanctified or made holy and then glorified in the next life, completely cleansed of sin. Until that day, or until he calls us home, we are in the process of being purified. If you feel that purification is a lonely scary business. I need you to know this, that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid, he says. Do not be discouraged. Spurgeon once said, the refiner is never far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold, that's you, that's you, that's you, that's all of us, when his gold is in the fire. The refiner is never far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold is in the fire. So thanks be to God for that. If 
you're feeling the flames of affliction licking about you, threatening to consume you, know that God watches over you, that he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He knows the right time to pull you from the furnace of affliction as he purifies you. But not only will he purify his people, but we also see in this text that he purifies the leaders of his people as well. Particularly, it says in this passage that he purifies the sons of Levi, those priests that were mentioned in chapters 1 and 2 who had offered impure sacrifices and had failed to lead God's people in the way that they should go. And in so doing, he also purifies their worship. Again, we can't do this for ourselves. God's people had failed in this time and again, despite God's long suffering, despite God's repeated warnings, and even despite God's judgment. While they had not returned to their idols after they had returned from exile, their quote-unquote orthodox faith had become a dead and lifeless thing that did little to change their lives. So God's son, Jesus Christ, came, and he became the leader that they needed, that we needed, and offered the perfect, pure sacrifice of himself and succeeded where these priests had failed in leading God's people in the way that they should go by offering pure worship. Only then can we see verses 3 and 4 realized where they and where we will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And then it says the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Where the Lord had been wearied by the people's complaints in chapter 2 and verse 17, he will now be pleased with the offering because God himself, through his son, Jesus Christ, will become that offering. And what we offer in return as a result of this is nothing more than a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, it says you will not despise. We come in our brokenness and our contrition in gratitude for his mercy, we present our bodies as living sacrifices, it says, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing, same idea that we see here, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. God's people must be refined. They must be purified, transformed, perfected. Only then will we see the longed-for justice that's been asked for, where we see in verse 5 that God vindicates his people. He will draw near for judgment, it says, as a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, those who thrust aside the sojourner, all those who do not fear the Lord. So despite the people's questioning and complaining regarding the delay of God's justice, look what it says here. God says he will judge swiftly. Perhaps not by our standards, but certainly by his. And I think he's proven time and again that his timing is way better than your timing. He may not come when you want him, but he's right on time, as I used to sing in the gospel choir that I was a part of. He may not come when you want him, 
but he's right on time. And look what he does here. He judges particular sins and particular sinners. First, he judges those who make a habit of practicing witchcraft, consulting with spiritists and the dead. And while that might seem a little far-fetched in our time and place, I've had conversations with several who do this very thing. And no, it wasn't on my trip to Southeast Asia recently, though that area is full of those who consult astrologers and spiritists who are waiting always for the most auspicious time to undertake something important, looking to the stars for wisdom instead of using the light those stars provide to be about God's business. No, it wasn't there. It's right here in the U.S. of A. Because the further we get from a Christian consensus, the more other spirits will move in, as we see in Matthew 12, where the spirit finds a house empty and put in order. And what does he do? He goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person, it says, is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Have you seen this? Have you experienced this? If not yet, then soon. Secondly, he judges adultery, defined in Scripture as indecent and disgusting sexual conduct, where a person has sexual relations with someone other than his or her spouse. And while adultery seems rather commonplace, Relatively acceptable in our time and place. Did you know that it was one of the 16 capital offenses punishable by death in Israel, according to Leviticus 20? In fact, we saw in the previous chapter of Malachi that those found faithless in this area were condemned as those covering their garments with violence, nullifying their character or or damaging their character and nullifying their covenant relationship with God and their spouse. In the New Testament, it's equally clear that those guilty of unrepentant adultery do not inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, repent before judgment comes swiftly upon you. Thirdly, he judges those who swear falsely, those who commit perjury, who break oaths, who fail to act on their word. Particularly, God condemns those who use false information to defraud or harm others. Let me just say that this can be subtle. Very subtle at times. We omit, we misdirect, we mislead, and we wander away from the truth, wandering in darkness as we cloak our sin like a Klingon bird of prey in Star Trek, right? Trying to sneak one past God as if that were possible. Revelation 21.8 says that their portion, along with the sorcerers and sexually immoral, same list that we see here in our text, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So therefore, we should repent before judgment comes swiftly upon us. Fourthly, it says he judges those who oppress the hired worker, meaning that God would have us compensate fairly those in our employ or those that we do business with. I know that we as Americans love a discount, love a bargain, We want to cut costs. We want to save a buck. But sometimes our love of discount has greed at its root. It comes on the backs of those unfairly compensated who live in economically depressed conditions. Now, I'm not sure of all the ins and outs of what constitutes fair trade, 
My money has been managed for 25 years by my much smarter wife, whom I trust implicitly to do the righteous thing here. But just let me just say this. To the best of my knowledge and to the best of my ability, I need to ensure that I do my part in avoiding greed and oppression. We as the richest people in the world need to pay special attention to this rebuke. Because while few of us might be so bold as to flagrantly and directly oppress hired workers, we subtly and and indirectly oppress others in our desire to get as much as we can for as little as possible. So ask yourself, am I as generous with others as God has been with me? Do I, in humility, count others as more significant than myself? Do I look not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others? Typically, this is a sin of selfishness, where the me monster surfaces, and it's all about me. What can I get? How am I doing? Why aren't you thinking about me? And we inadvertently oppress because we're thinking about ourselves. Therefore, we should repent before judgment comes swiftly upon us. Let me hurry on. Fifthly and finally, he judges those who do not take care of the needy, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, the refugee. In other words, he condemns those who do not take care of the vulnerable. Now, we tend to scratch the backs of those who scratch our backs. But what do we do for those who do little to nothing for us? How do we care for those who cannot return the favor? Because God cares about that. We hear a lot these days about social justice. Often, social justice, as our culture defines it, is about helping those who can help themselves. But God's primary concern regarding social justice is to ensure help for those who cannot help themselves. The child in the womb the orphan, the handicapped adult who cleans your office, the refugee who just moved here and could use a smile, maybe even a helping hand, the widow or widower in the elderly care home or even here in this church. At its heart, all these sins show a contempt for or lack of acknowledgement of God's existence and God's right to rule and reign. So verse 5 ends by saying that judgment comes upon those who do not fear the Lord. Just in case he missed anybody. It's a blanket statement here. Judgment comes upon those who do not fear God. Romans 3 tells us that outside of a work of God, none is righteous, none seek for God. No fear of God is before our eyes. But now it says the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith, In Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. What a contrast this is with Vishnu, the Hindu God that we had spoken of earlier who destroys worlds to impress a mere prince to do his duty. What a silly man-made idea. The true God does not need to impress you 
or even to persuade you to do your duty. And even if he did, he would not destroy worlds to do so. Instead, he did your duty for you. Where man-made religion says do, God says done. Where man-made religion says do, God says done. It is finished. And once it is finished, and we see that we can only live in that finished work, he then refines and purifies. He sends his son to accomplish what we could not. Where these priests had failed and where we continue to fail, Jesus, this messenger of the covenant, succeeds. Jesus saves his people by his death on the cross, and then he calls his people to take up their cross and follow him. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are in the process of refining God's people even by fire. But God does not destroy indiscriminately as the Vishnu does, as the bomb does. Instead, God individually tailors his means of purification in order to vindicate his people. But if you refuse him, then destruction awaits. Some will be destroyed but not indiscriminately and not obliterated, but forever consigned to fire. So let me ask you this. Would you have the fires of refinement now or would you have the fires of judgment forever? Let me say that again. Would you have the fires of refinement now or the fires of judgment forever? Amen. Are you grieved by various trials? Let me just say that perhaps that's part of the process of purification. Jesus didn't die to leave you in an impure state. He declares you righteous. And then he spends a lifetime refining you. All you need to do is ask. And when he does refine you, vindication follows purification wherein all things will be set right. Until then, would you submit to this refinement and submit your bodies as living sacrifices to the praise of his glory?